Hello, and welcome to The Money Movement. I'm really excited to be here in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum, and today uh, joined by founder and CEO of Brex, Enrique Dubugres. Really great to have you on the show here. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start with like the very basic thing, which is what do you think of Davos? You know, we're both uh, fintechs here in new industries, World Economic Forum, a lot of old industries. <laughs> uh, the median age is probably uh, inside the forum a little older, but like as a company that is a disruptor and building, what's it like to be here and how are you finding the whole thing? Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm very much enjoying it. I guess uh, this year being in the spring makes it much easier. I'm doing all these walking meetings, which is very nice. It's very nice outside. Let's see how I, how I do in the winter. But um, so far, so good. I think it's been very good to connect with both people that are super relevant to our business in terms of customers, investors, and partners, but also getting to learn about general geopolitics, what's happening around the world. And I think, you know, as a CEO, it's important to have a worldview and an understanding of uh, what's happening. I would say that people that I've been meeting are very open to tech and, you know, understanding how tech and is changing the world, both in our industries and in other industries. I don't know how true that was 10 years ago here in Davos, but I'm definitely feeling this year that a lot of people from traditional industries are very open and curious to learning about what we're doing. That makes sense. Yeah, it seems like the forum has over time just added more and more young technology companies. And, you know, I think that in the past we sort of had a reputation of being like all the biggest companies in the world or whatever. And now it's, uh, it's cool to see. And like, as you saw, like the promenade is like, got, I don't know how many crypto things going on, which so <laughs> is sign of the times. I always love to hear someone's personal journey a little bit. And I think our, our viewers and, and listeners as well. So maybe just kind of take us through founding of Brex, you know, what was the aha? How did it happen? And then kind of a little bit of extrapolate kind of to where you are today. Absolutely. So um, just to give some background to everyone, I'm originally born and raised in Brazil, which, you know, um, somewhat relevant to crypto in some ways, because yeah. we, we lived through a lot of inflation and currency changes and, uh, you know, before my time. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, definitely, uh, we can talk about a little bit of that later. But uh, yeah. Grew up in Brazil, born and raised, started coding when I was 12 because this game I wanted to play is a paid game. And I realized that if I learned how to code, I could play for free and build an emulator for the game. And nice. I did that. My first coding was also like basically like figuring out how to like make games on like old Apple II computers. Exactly. Yeah, Mine was yeah. more trying to copy an existing game that was paid, you know, and like build a kind of an emulator. And I found this community of people doing it and, you know, kind of learn how to code and build my own version of the game that instead of a subscription you could play it for free mm-hmm. um, and it got super popular in brazil until i got these like legal notifications saying i was breaking some sort of patents i didn't really know what patents were but my mom got super upset and pushed <laughs> everything off so that's kind of how i got into technology super young and then um you know at 14 i um i decided to start i got obsessed into getting into stanford because of this tv show that i saw called chuck and, uh, you know, and then I found this Brazilian guy that was graduating from Stanford and we did this deal in which I would code for him for free in exchange. He would teach me the process. So I got into startups by being the first engineer at this ticketing startup when I was 14. Wow. And, uh, that's how I got into, you know, kind of the startup world, started reading TechCrunch, understanding this world of Silicon Valley, got kind of obsessed with it after a year 
left to try to start my own education company, mm. which didn't really work out. And then, you know, I, I, I was having a little bit of trouble with my parents. You know, there's not a manual of like how to deal with your 15-year-old kid who kind of wants to drop out of school and start companies and it's coding, you know. And so I got emancipated, kind of moved out of my house, started wow, supporting myself. Right. And uh, I was running out of money, so I needed to make some money. I found this hackathon in Miami that was worth $50,000. And I was like, wow, if I can win this thing, like more time, you know, I can like just do my stuff. Oh, so uh, I went to this hackathon and um, built this dating app that was called Ask Me Out. That was kind of like Tinder, but instead of geolocation of Facebook friends, you could like and match your Facebook friends. I won the hackathon, wow. came back to Brazil and tried to launch it as a business. It also didn't work out, but it's how I got into payments for the first time. I was implementing a payment system for it. And, um, you know, because uh, basically the idea was if you got matched with someone from your Facebook network, would you pay five bucks to know who it was, right? Like, mm -hmm. so that was the idea. Well, sounds like a good idea. didn't really work, but I got an introduced payments. And around the same time, I met my co-founder, Pedro. And Pedro, uh, he was, he had a similar upbringing, even though we're completely different. He, he started coding when he was nine years old. And when he was 12, he got very hacker famous for jailbreaking the first iPhone 3G in the world. Wow. And, you know, and he, he was all over the news, you know, in the, both in the U.S. and in Brazil. And so I heard about him before, but didn't know him. And then he got hired by Brazil's largest payments company to go work as an engineer there for iPhone security because no one in Brazil understood about iPhone security at that time. And he was like hacking iPhones. And then we met in the end of 2012, basically fighting over text editors. Um, I was Vim. He was Emacs. Oh, yeah. You know, we got into this endless fight on Twitter. You know, it got too complicated to fight over hundreds of characters. <laughs> and uh, we went to Skype, and on Skype, we became best friends. This is probably we're both 16 last year of high school. Amazing. And then we decided to start our first company together. So we started a payments business in Brazil that was kind of like Stripe of Brazil, so online payment processing. Hmm. We did that for three and a half years. This one worked for Brazil standards, you know, grew it to a little bit over 150 people, a billion and a half in TPV. And we both got into Stanford. So we we're like, okay, like we got to need to decide if we go, we don't. So we sold the company to go to Stanford because we wanted to build something in Silicon Valley. It seemed that everything big in tech was coming out of Silicon Valley. There's no Brazilian unicorn at this point. Mm -hmm. Six months in, we uh, decided to drop out and, and start Brex. We actually got into YC with a VR idea. And within YC, we decided to pivot to FinTech. And the way that kind of the idea came about was we saw that all these startups had raised a lot of money, right? Like, you know, two, $3 million after demo day and they couldn't get a corporate credit card. Right. And we thought that makes absolutely no sense. You know, right. like, how can that be? You have $3 million in your bank account. And we went to ask the banks, like, why don't you do this? And they're like, well, what if they burn the money? And we're like, well, you can just monitor it and see if they're not burning the money. It's like, no, no, that's too advanced for our systems. Right. And we're like, okay, so, you know, that seems like an opportunity. <laughs> So that's uh, amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it's like a simple idea, right? But I think because of the legacy systems of the banking technology, you know, they all use kind of a traditional legacy right. bank. They've got, a, they've got a transaction banking core, Jack Henry. Or whatever exactly. Is. Exactly. Like, like writing like data observation and event. Exactly. Like you can't do that. It's like a hundred million dollars in three years project, you know, like yeah. for the startup yeah. thing, like and whatever. You got to hire a strategic consulting firm and uh, exactly. Accenture and uh, who knows what. <laughs> so um, one big decision we had early on our Brex is actually rebuilding all that ourselves, you yeah. know, and not relying on any of right. this stuff. Right. So that's we what have that in common. We, we, we were like, we built our own transaction banking core uh, I think it's super important. Otherwise, you don't own your own destiny. You totally. know? And you're yeah. like always bound by the legacy technology. That's that's, yeah. We'll come back to that theme in a little bit. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, we, and then we launched kind of like a year later and there was this credit card for startups. If you yeah. were a startup, you raise money, you could get it and start spending immediately. Yeah. And that had an incredible amount of product market fit. You know, that product went from zero to like a hundred million in annualized revenue in 18 yeah. months. I have a question about that actually. Yeah. So I watched that, like, I mean, it was hard to miss cause you guys figured out like a direct marketing model. You must've figured out like your CAC CLTV or whatever it was yeah. like very quickly. And like you scaled out like in, I assume like major cities where you had like startup activity and you just like were like everywhere with outdoor advertising and digital advertising and like, totally. like it was hard to miss. Yeah, right? hard to miss. Hard, hard, that was the goal. Hard to miss, right. It's exactly the goal, surround, you know, people, et cetera. But maybe for the other startup founders out there, just for a moment, like what was the calculus? You don't need to share proprietary data, obviously, but like what, what was the fundamental calculus that you had in terms of the unit economics to make that work and to have the confidence to like spend at the level that you did. And, and did so, you have to raise money to do that or were you just funding it off of, of cash flow? At that yeah. Point? So no. So we, um, we were, we were like, so one of the things we realized for our business is that anything in our business, we would have to have a lot of money. Yeah. So before launch, we had fintech expenses. Yeah. Fintech expense, right? Yeah. We had to do this huge system build out the banks that we wanted to work with. They needed to be sure that we're going to be around. So we had a lot of our runway. So even before launch, we had to raise $57 million. Right. But actually, the thing that everyone knows us about is this kind of like San Francisco billboard takeover. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the whole thing, if you bought billboards in scale, it was $300,000 for three months of ma- most of the billboards in San Francisco. Yeah. So it wasn't that expensive, if that makes sense. But the thing yeah. that I, I yeah. learned is that I think Silicon Valley is obsessed with, you know, kind of like trying to directly measure ROI. Yeah. and you know, when talking to some of the best marketers in the world, like I think just getting into people's like awareness is such like a big thing. You know? It all works together. Yeah, like, exactly. Awareness and direct response and everything, it all works together. So, yeah. you know, it kind of what you're saying, because it was hard to miss every time a sales rep reached out to a customer, like, oh, I heard of Rex, you know, like this is not something like I didn't hear. And the other thing that, you know, we then lost a little bit later and happy to talk about mistakes, but like, the message was so clear. What do we do? We're yeah. a corporate car for startups. Like there's no, yeah. there's no questioning what, you know, what we do and who we're for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that helped a ton. Yeah, totally. Okay. So that was the core idea and you saw that problem. You got in to build it. Now you guys have executed a lot since then. Yeah. Right. So where are you today? Basically? Yeah. So the, the next thing that happened to us is we decided to, you know, 18 months in our customers are like, Hey, I love your credit card. It's amazing, but I hate my bank. Right. And we're like, okay, that sounds like an opportunity. So we then built our, you know, our business account product, which is, um, uh, we're technically not a bank, but for all intents and purposes, our customers use us as their bank. So they run yeah. payroll with us, they deposit money with us, they get FDIC insurance, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So that did really well. Not so much in like migrating, you know, people who already had bank accounts to like, you know, move to us, but all the net new startups. De novo startups. Right? Exactly. Where do, I do? Where do I start? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because we could approve you like in a day, right? Versus like all the other banks, you have to go to the branch, you have to do, you know, there's a whole thing. Yeah. And that started doing really well. We didn't charge for wires, ACH, anything. So, you know, that product did really well. It didn't monetize as much for a longer right. time because interest rates were zero, right? right. So, yeah. um, but we thought that in the future, you know, it'd be a good business for us. And also for our customers, it's like an amazing experience and yeah. it goes well with our card product. Yeah. So that was kind of, I would say, phase two of Brax, right? And in, in which we we're going. And, and then COVID happened. And then during COVID, 
we were trying to figure out, okay, like what is the the next stage for us? Like, you know, this business banking thing is going, the credit card thing is going, what is the next phase mm-hmm. for Brax? Mm-hmm. And a lot of our customers that we signed up when they were really small now are big, right? Like Brex started with two people. And su- customer success. Exactly, sure. exactly. So we sign up today like roughly 80% of every Y Combinator batch, right? So that was true, you know, for a few years ago. So all these companies are getting big. Yeah. And as they were getting big, they started having all these expense management needs. So they started implementing things like Expensify or Concur or some of these expense softwares. But everyone hated it, right? Like it was this like general thing. Awful. We're like everyone thought like this is terrible, right? And we were like, why is this terrible? You know, these are like you know, especially the newer ones, right? Like people have been trying to attack this expense yeah. management problem for a long yeah. time. Like why? Why are they all terrible? And we realize is that when companies start, right, they start with this culture of trust. Everyone trusts everyone. You're giving everyone cards, right? Like everything is going right. But then some tail event happens. Yeah, you know, after parties. Yeah, after parties, someone goes and buys this first class ticket when they shouldn't, an expensive bottle of wine, something. And the CEO gets super upset and says, oh my God, this is never, I don't want this to ever happen again. You know, like, this is like not a culture of financial discipline I want to have in my company, right? Right? Like, you know, this person doesn't, you know, et cetera. So they get really upset and they implement some sort of process and system to make sure it never happens again. Yeah. Yeah. But that process makes it hard for 99% of people to get 1%. Yeah. Right. And that's how kind of bureaucracy starts. So that happens all across the companies, not only expensive. Totally. Yeah. And then we launched Empower recently, which is kind of our product to solve that. And like, how do we make it easy for 99% of people yeah. while like catching the 1%, right? Yeah. Which has been having a lot of traction. Uh, is that like rules based or is that like? So there's three things that we kind of focus on, you know, with that. The first one is we believe most employees are trying to do the right thing, but it's sometimes hard to do the right thing, right? Like even people lose their receipts. It's yeah. like really annoying. So first thing is like, hey, we just automate a lot of receipt capturing. Yeah. And because it's our card, it's kind of attached to our card. If it's yeah. like our card, you know, we can get the receipt. Yeah. Number two is policy explainability, right? Like a lot of times, let's say you're coming to, to Davos, you know, you're an employee. Like, what can I spend? Where can I stay? Like, what are the policies? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, and sometimes you do something wrong because you just don't know. Right. So within the context of the spend, you know, kind of give you super easy explainability. The third thing is for managers, right? Like there's this fake thing that people think that managers review every expense. Right. But it's not true. No one has time to look through every yeah. single Uber you got. They just rubber stamp it and move yeah. on. Yeah. It's kind of like a fake process. So what we do is we actually um, can detect which things are out of policy and only flag to the manager's thing out of policy. Yeah. And things that are on policy, we just approve. Yeah. Right. And if yeah. the finance team wants to have a second look later, they can. So it's kind of this managed by exception or trust yeah. and verify principle. Right. And then we also give a ton of visibility into what's happening, right? So because we have everything is based on budgets, you can see exactly if people are under budget, over budget. And if you're doing an offsite, like how's that going in real time, you know, and, and having this like clear, clear accountability for people. So that's been generating like a ton of response because companies want to move fast, right? So DoorDash, for example, is the first marquee customer for this product. Mm-hmm. And they told us this story that like really stuck with me, which was like, there was this GM from a warehouse they're trying to sell ice with beverages during the hot summer to see if it would sell. And he went to finance and the finance team said, hey, you need to go to procurement, procurement go. And it took six weeks to buy $1,000 worth of ice. They negotiated from 1000 to 920 But then nice. by the time that happened, you know, the summer was over, right? So there's this cost of time that a lot of times companies don't, don't value it or don't revisit when they implement processes, which is think was what we're selling. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. That whole... What you've just described is just like the 
like perfect example of why like software driven companies are just like gonna you know blow away like legacy financial companies right it's just like s- such an obvious example but like you know there, there's sort of this evolution of fintech uh like I mean, like there, I don't know, I, I hate these like fintech 1.0, 3.0, whatever, yeah. whatever it is. But like there is this evolution, right? And in some ways, like payments, some form of digital payments was like the first thing that happened, like PayPal. Yeah. Or what, you know, that was sort of like fintech or whatever. And now you're getting like deeper things. But as, as you think about the, the kind of problem space scope, it seems like this is like going way beyond what a bank would have would ever consider like. Yeah in their remit, right? Yeah. Like, how do I go into the workflows of the financial operations yeah. of a company yeah. and like, del- and, and focus on like delightful user experience yeah. or what have you? Like, I mean, just like philosophically, like h- how do you think about, you know, your, you know, the problem space that you're trying to solve and, you know, obviously, you know, just maybe a little bit of commentary on how you think that we kind of where we are in the evolution of, of, sort of how financial services gets built. Yeah, for sure. So I think that banks, if you think about it, right, like they were almost like a government concession, right? Like, hey, I'm giving you this concession to take depositor money and lend it out for the economy, right? Right. So the banks, they were thought out, this is like my mission, right? Like this is what I'm responsible for. And because the systems were very bad, the point of integration between the banking and the software that interact with them are really bad. There's a lot of data and experience that gets lost in that point of integration. Mm -hmm. So we believe that it's kind of like this vertical integration between the financial software and the financial services. In the same way, you know, we think like, for example, Android was, hey, we have this OS and then no matter what manufacturer and, you know, there's some clunkiness that happened because of that. And Apple is like, no, we're just going to like vertically integrate everything into an experience, right? So I think that's kind of how I I believe things are going to happen. You know, we're going to do things which is like, hey, how do we integrate both the financial services and the software they used to interact with it in one single place, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But then the thing that is complicated is, you know, and touching a little bit on on, on kind of your world as well, even if we do that, then there's all these other rails that are like inter kind of company and bank things that have been legacy software from a long a time ago. FTP servers and text files. Exactly. Text Honestly, files. We, we have to deal with a lot of FTP servers. It's, it's part of the job, you know, like even if we're building a lot of our core banking, yeah. right, for all the ACH payments, checks, globally, everything is still, yeah. still like that, right? That makes a lot of sense. I think there's sort of like, in some ways, there's like a couple of like these, I don't know, megatrends, whatever. Like one is, you know, clearly like the deep focus on user experience and like ultimately like solving real user problems and whether that's a business user or other. And like that, that's just like a a radical different point of orientation versus like a bank. Like the the second like big thing is basically just like data and how data can, it obviously supports great user experiences, but just like fundamentally like banks are not really great at like doing things in with with real-time data or, totally. or any of that and then like the third big one which is sort of a little bit where we're operating is like dealing with the fact that you can build a great user experience but if the pipes and the plumbing are kind of like still what they are right it has like inherent limitations totally. um, and those could be like time unit economics interoperability other things right that that are there and the whole crypto space at least as we came into it 
or as I was thinking about it when we sort of circle with digital currency and public chain infrastructure and all of this, like the thought was like, actually, you could build, you know, a ground up kind of financial market infrastructure and a ground up way to represent dollars and euros and other things and, and make that like actually composable and programmable and all these things. And so we're, you know, as you know, like slowly executing against that. But like, where do you see that, you know, kind of deeper changes in the financial system? Like, where do you see that connecting to what you're doing? Obviously, we think there's a great connection there. Um, But but like, where do you see that? How do you think about that in the realm that you're in? Yeah, no, I, I would say that. Look, I honestly think that credit cards are honestly amazing, right? Like think about it in some way, you can swipe this little piece of plastic in Thailand, right? And, you know, you're going to get billed in the US. And this merchant in Thailand gets the money like two days later, right? Right? Like, it's actually pretty impressive, right? Like as a system. But I think that not everything runs on credit cards, right? Yeah. And then if you go to the SWIFT system, for example, I think that's terrible. Like, yes. that's like, <laughs> yes. Yes. like there's these like yeah. banks in the middle, there's all these things, right? Like, I, I think that... And underneath those cards, right, there's like 12 intermediaries and it's unbelievable. And SWIFT yeah. is actually underneath there too. Like all these things, yeah, 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 layer yeah. upon layer upon layer, obviously like you, using, you know, kind of collateral and other things, money can move a little bit faster than ultimately, you know, kind of how stuff goes. But yeah. yeah and the reason I bring it up is just like, I think for our business, you know, like the part where we can do on cart, that kind of works. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. That's like, you know, it could get better, yeah. but it works. The stuff that we don't do on cart, I think that's terrible. You know, yeah. like that is like, right. Um, <laughs> right. very, very terrible. Yeah. Because you know, everything like settlement against different currencies and paying people's bank accounts. Like if I send an international wire to someone in Brazil, like the branch manager of his bank doesn't really even know yeah. how to do, like how to do that, you know, that, that, that affects, like yeah. there's a lot of problems with yeah. like international money movement, especially yeah. when, when you get at a card. So, you know, that's something that we're particularly excited yes. to, you know, on what you guys are building and the new layer of infrastructure yeah. to do. And I think there's also a lot of new use cases, right? For, you know, we're seeing in crypto with crypto gaming, NFTs, et cetera. They're just even like native. And yeah, they, they still need a lot of the workflows that we're doing. Absolutely, they still yeah. they still need to interact with the real world, you Absolutely. know, and, and stuff like that. So people always ask me like, oh, is crypto going to kill our, your business? I'm like, no, I really wish crypto took over right. because I'm going to adapt a lot faster than the yeah. banks, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. I mean, it's like, I, I think like, I think Block is an interesting company, obviously, too. And, you know, clearly, like, they've done an amazing job of of, of dealing with, like, what do merchants need to, like, set up their business and, and handle all the, a lot of stuff that, that's there. And they, that's a big business. It's a SaaS business, and they have all, all these pieces. But at the same time, like, I feel like there's a, a view to, you know, if we could actually just, like, get down to, like, a little bit more commoditization of, like, underlying, like, payment rails, like that, that would be a step forward. And, and, but you could, you know, you can still build amazing experiences for merchants. Yeah. You can still build, you can still be at the core of their operations and you can still, I think there's this, it's all these addendum services around there, right? Yeah. Like payment companies, they're going from being straight processing to yeah. processing being one, like a Shopify, right? Yeah. Like, you know, payments is a way they monetize, but there's all these things around Ab- it. Absolutely. And and capital intermediation and what you can do with the relationship with those businesses as well. And, and you know, support. 
these ways. The other thing I was going to say is around global. So like, you know, deglobalization has been like the hot word here in Naples, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, of the supply chains and, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And I think, look, that's definitely a factor that's going. But there's, I think there's this globalization. We were talking about that at dinner the other night. Yeah, right? exactly. I think both of us were like, actually, we're like long on globalization. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I think there's this whole globalization now. Like just to give you a stat, when we started, you know, over before COVID, when we measured this, only 10% of people that use Brex actually like, you know, had employees outside of the country, mm-hmm. right? Everyone, all oh, 90% US. Yeah. Now it's 51% hiring outside of the country, right? Yeah, like totally. That is like globalizing yeah. in nature, right? Like knowledge, experience, workforce, yeah. like yeah. everything. We so, went from basically like Boston and New York and you know, a, a small number of people in Dublin to like, we're now in like 12 countries. Exactly. We're growing, we're adding more and, you know, it's unbelievable, right? Exactly. And I think that like, in my view, whenever things go global, globalization, global infrastructure gets accelerated a ton, yeah. right? And it matters a lot more Yeah. because I think that, again, things locally, they, they're bad, but they work. Mm-hmm. Global, a lot of times it doesn't work, you know, like. <laughs> it's just like, the, and, and like, Financial infrastructure is a place where it's still trapped almost like in a pre-internet era. I mean, yeah. it's, it's in the sense of like everything's still like bound up inside of like a country perimeter, like yeah. the actual like infrastructure itself. And it's like this regulated kind of like proprietary things. And like that's the opportunity to like break through that and have Absolutely. You know, an internet of money, right? Which is, which, which I think can, can assist with that. And I'm interested just as an entrepreneur as well, or, you know, as, as you think about business models a little bit, like, I always wonder whether over time, payment utility, if unit economics of sort of storage movement of money kind of becomes more like data or whatever, like, does do the financial companies of the future look more like SaaS companies as opposed to like, you know, bank banks that are, you know, focused on deposits and lending or, or is there a hybrid? What is, what do you think that looks like? I think that, um, you know, and this is the whole debate around interchange, right? Like why does kind of like interchange exist? You know, yeah. they regulate in some places and in others, what's the, 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 the advantage of that? Um, I do think though that payment processing, it's a little bit more just in data moving because yeah. of the, the edge cases of like what happens if it, it's it's fraud and and you know and like credit cards have credit sort right the, the real credit the, right i call it the assurance layer of exactly of yes. the, the assurance layer of payments yes. that needs to be charged right yeah. like that is that has someone needs to take risks totally. on economics and yeah. and things like that and yeah. i think that will always exist that will always i would say uh, exist the rewards are a very interesting thing yeah. to me you know coming from brazil no one cared about rewards yeah and then in the U.S., everyone's obsessed with their points, right? Yes. So I would say that um, I'm skeptical that I think rewards are a stronger force of nature than most people realize, if that makes sense, um, on the current system. So I think whatever new system is going to have to replace it yeah. With, yeah. with something you know, yeah. as interesting. I wonder if building blocks like NFTs become the mechanism mechanism design open, totally. open interoperable they can work and be used you, totally. can, you can be inventive and creative and so on with well those, and yeah. actually the u.s is the only country that i know of that actually doesn't have a points coalition system right like yeah. you know like you know, amex has its own points and right. United, you know, everyone so has their own right. points yeah. in brazil like there are points but it's, it's co it's like one thing you can yeah. trade between multiple things like right. etc right. there's a great great thing to be like an open distributed kind of network absolutely 
that um, work around the world. Exactly. That will work around the world, et cetera. So I think like there, there's going to be infrastructure designed for that. And, you know, there's going to be some economics that come from that as well. Yeah. So, um, but I do think, you know, there's definitely a lot of space for, for disruption. Totally. But if you look globally, right, like a lot of countries try to compete with Visa and MasterCard locally. Mm-hmm. So in Brazil, there's probably like 10 card brands. Mm-hmm. And I talk about Brazil, I just got them from there, but I'm sure this is true in around the world. That local, the banks are like, why do I need Visa and MasterCard? Like, I'll just do my own thing over here. You know, I'm both sides. The problem is the global scale. Like when you yeah. travel, like, you know, how do you spend it? Right. Yeah. Interoperability, global, et cetera. Yeah. And definitely problems to solve at scale with software on the internet eventually. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Maybe just like at a, a personal level, I'm interested in your own like journey around crypto. Is there stuff that you've become more interested in or, or like areas that you're personally excited about? Yeah, for sure. So um, look, uh, for Brex and our business, the first thing we kind of like dabbled into crypto is the um, rewards, right? So like, hey, can you now use these reward points to, you know, convert to Bitcoin and ETH and, you know, um, USDC, I think now too. So how do you like kind of use that? And it became our most popular rewards redemption program, easily, which is tells us something. Yeah, about startups in in uh, in these days. Yeah, exactly. It tells you something, right? So I think that's like super interesting. You know, we've been thinking about what else to do in the business. The thing is, like businesses, they're not early adopters of stuff a lot of times, right? Especially like VC backed businesses. You know, this is not exactly your money. So like, you know, there's 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 some resistance there. So we've been thinking about how to go next. But personally, on a personal side, I'm extremely excited about crypto gaming, honestly. Mm. I do think that, look, we're in the early innings of that. But, you know, if you ask the next generation of kids if they wanted, if they could be professional gamers, and that's like a thing, like these kids would be like excited about that, you know, like it would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, you look at like the whole like play to earn or work, you know, all these like incentivized behavioral, you know, token based models with NFTs and sort of taking possession and ownership of objects and other things. It's exactly, exactly. And the interoperability of them. So I think that like if playing games can become an industry, right? And uh, because I think, you know, what we need still is the best game developers in the world to build games that are both fun and you can earn money, right? Totally. Which I think is kind of the, the journey that a lot of people are going through because if you only have people, you know, wanting to make money, then it, it becomes a little bit, you know, like a, you know, a pyramid scheme kind of vibe. But if yeah. you have both players with this is a really fun game and I, I'm willing to pay for it and have fun and also people can earn money, okay. I think that can become like a real kind of industry. Yeah, I think um, whatever the gaming industry is bigger than Hollywood and for the most part, it's just money going in. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if you could combine the passion and the energy and the enjoyment and other things where it's money going in and it's money coming out, that's that's pretty, pretty exactly and also nfts like you know a lot of people criticize them like digital jpegs and everything yeah. and all that um look, me personally like i i was at that view you know i'd say a few months ago but then talking to 18 year olds think about it, 18 year olds are born 2004 right like yeah. that's you know crazy for me to think about right. they don't have an apartment to put their art you know like they don't yeah. people are not coming like you know and and there's social media right like you know i think what OpenSea did with twitter your twitter profile like and that's a way of them to expressing their brand and expressing yeah. themselves. Right. Like, I, I totally believe that. I think it's hard for, yeah. you know, the older generation to understand because I was having a discussion with a friend of mine about clothing brands, right? And he's like, well, clothing brands, the expensive ones are all about showing status. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, I think that was true, but that's not true anymore, right? Like people who use like Balenciaga, yeah. it's like, you know, they align with Kanye West's values and you know, what he's yeah. about. And it's right. more about it's aligning with him than it is about kind of, you know, like showing that you can afford Balenciaga. Yeah. And I think NFTs, there's a similar thing in my view, you know? So that's like at least my personal opinion. And Yeah. Yeah. No, I see all that. I see all that. Very cool. Well, so maybe last like high level question for you is I kind of like to always ask, imagine a world where like, you know, as you think about, and, and you could do this in the lens of Brex specifically, or kind of what you're, you're hopeful for out of all of the kinds of things that we're just kind of like talking about, but like a few years from now, three years from now, four years from now, how's the world different? I think the world that I want to see is, uh, insanely globalized world you can work from anywhere you can pay anything from any currency you can you know there's no drop like there's no friction between going country by country city by city you know we solve all the problems around like a truly like globalized world so i would i would love that country to happen i think uh, it gives smaller countries a much fairer shot also at becoming you know growing developing their economies it gives people the ability to live wherever it makes them happiest and still work for the companies that make them happiest. And it reduces the friction for companies to hire talents around the world. So I really like I love that vision. I'm totally aligned with you. So hopefully we can find ways to work together to make that happen. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, Enrique. Thank you so much. Bye.